1: Then everyone and welcome to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation. I am Ron Kolick, your host, the gatekeeper of the realm of the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable New England's own Van Helsink. And with me is not Anne. Uh, she is away working and I just lost my guest. Oh no. Anyways, I'm here. That's all that matters. So, uh, if you missed Ghost Chronicles uh, International just prior to this, I was talking with Steve. We, we were talking about sound and Your light and, and paranormal in the paranormal and how it affects uh, people. And it was it was pretty interesting, especially sound. I'm I'm really intrigued by that. Um, but we also mentioned something in that same thing, which was the Boynich uh, manuscript, and that's a, a ancient book that they that no one's uh, been able to decode. Uh, some people it thinks it's a uh, fake. Uh, they have tried they have tried uh, various methods of uh, breaking the code on the book, but uh, I know there was a university in New Han- in Canada that. Uh, that did it Uh, okay so anyways looks like I got my guest back but uh, the reason I brought that up is because recently they were talking about uh, Mary Queen of Scots uh, coded messages they just were able to decode them so Robert are you with us all right I'm back okay Okay. so anyways uh, joining me now is uh, Robert Geek who is a New England uh, author is is that a way of good describing you
2: well, I, I'm pretty much more, I, I consider myself a historian now because I've written 14 histories. Um, I, I do also write other types, of, you know, I write fiction and other things as well, but mostly history.
1: Mostly history, which is good because that's the most important thing. I mean, uh, we we don't really have enough true historic books. Uh, we have people that that love to talk about uh things that aren't researched uh and and uh basically nonfiction and they be they actually you know come out as as truth and and they're really not they're just you know stories. That's uh,
2: very you very do. true.
1: Yeah. Yeah
2: you know, I, I work I work with as many primary documents as I can and I try to bring out uh hidden stories that, that people don't necessarily know about. Concerning especially uh, the last book that I've written that will be out next July um, is uh, called Death in uh, Early New England Rights, Rituals, and Remembrance. And that covers everything in the way that people live their lives. And, you know, think about living in early New England and uh, having, you know, having uh, so many laws that could easily have you put to death, for one thing. Uh, and then yeah. there, of course, are the crimes that would commonly lead to one being hung, like murder and and uh, infanticide and things like that. And that's all part of your daily right.
1: life. Yeah, I mean, the English did that to us. They they had laws for everything. Uh, then we based uh, we mind. based our laws on theirs
2: uh, initially. Yes, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, yeah. So uh, we can blame them. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, they all. You know, they they also banned uh, Christmas at one time, the Puritans, I know that.
2: Yes, they did, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, but, you know, there were, by the colonial times, I think uh, there were enough people celebrating Christmas. I read mostly about uh, the colonial times, but uh, I do delve into the early part. Of this early, uh, of course, this book delves into the early, early days of New England as well, so. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, tell me a little bit about your history. how How did you get involved in 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 your love for history?
2: well i was I was uh, writing fiction as a young man, and i um, I had written newspaper articles and always had an interest in uh, history. And so I wrote about local history for uh, newspapers, little local newspapers like the Warwick uh, Beacon and the Coventry Townsmen. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in Rhode Island here. And uh, I then developed, as I went into uh, high school and then into college, into uh, writing more fiction than history, but I wrote historical fiction. So I was always researching the history of the time period in which my stories were said. I even wrote a couple of novels through uh, a decade or so, you know, into 15 years. Um, oh, wow. got a few things published, you know. Uh, but then... Um, I was writing a, one particular story, a, a novella, really, that that was about a family and being displaced after the Civil War and being resettled on a poor farm, and I did all of this research about um, a poor farm in Massachusetts that actually existed and, and what the life would have been like, like and so forth, and how many of these families found themselves destitute after the Civil War. And I realized that I enjoyed the research you know, just as much as I enjoyed sitting down writing about it. So um, my first book was about the Narragansett uh, Indian tribe here in Rhode Island. Um, right. And that was something that came out of uh, an incident that had happened many years before. I had a brother-in-law, uh, Frank, who was a uh, indigenous American, a Narragansett member. And uh, after his death, uh, or before, shortly before his death, I should say, I was uh, visiting with his mother. And we were walking around the uh, tribal um, compound, the reservation, as they call it, in Narragansett and Westerly, and uh, we were talking about the tribe. And she said to me, "Maybe you'll be the one that writes a book to help white people understand uh, what the tribe is about." And here, I was just uh, about to head into college, and I thought, well, I'm not the person to do that. Um, but uh, it stuck with me all of those years. And then in my 30s, I decided, my 40s really, I decided I was going to finally uh, sit down and write a book about the tribe. Uh, so that that was my first book. Uh, that was published mm-hmm. by the History Press.
1: And, and the, the book about the, the answer, what, what was it history, about the history of the tribe? Uh, Life of the tribe, or uh, what was it? What did it deal with? Well, it was really all encompassing from their very beginnings,
2: and the visit by Verrazano, uh, describing them as a a very comely people and a very kind people, and uh, the way that they dressed and so forth uh, uh, was very different from other indigenous tribes that he met. Of course, they lived by the ocean, so they made uh, necklaces out of seashells and they. Uh, were very clean as a, compared to the inland indigenous people who had to, you know, basically cover themselves with mud in the summertime to keep the mosquitoes off, you know. So uh there were many, many different tribes on the New England coastline in early America. So uh it, it goes from the time of 1500s up until the present time and about the time of the uh, raid on the Indian uh, uh, cigarette uh, Red shop that would happen. What and was so, this the rate? Uh, that was, that happened. Sure, that happened about 2013, where uh the indigenous people, of course, their their reservation is is uh, their own land, and they consider it as other tribes to themselves the sovereign tribe and really a nation within a nation. So this, so right. they decided that since there was this taxation on this large taxation on, on cigarette products in Rhode Island at the time. They were going to open their own shop and sell cigarettes at a discounted price without the taxes. Well, of course, this was going to be a boon for the tribe. And this they did this really in response in a, way, a political way as well, uh, to being rejected for opening up their own casino, uh, which was another incident that happened earlier, early in the 2000s. Uh, where the tribe had wanted to open a casino, and the state rejected that, but then turned around and gave licensing to people who were in fact involved with the state to open a casino on their own. And so we have two in the state now, but neither one of those run by the indigenous tribe. Um, Mm -hmm. So to go back to the cigarette rate, so they decided to sell cigarettes at a discount, and the state decided that they needed to, uh, they couldn't do that, and it was unlawful. Even though it was within their own territory, and so it, was it was on tribal land. Right? It was on tribal land. Yeah, they raided the they raided the cigarette shop and arrested <laughs> everyone. Yeah, <laughs> and it all gets sorted out years later, but they're still not allowed to. You know, again, this was an attempt by the tribe to uh, to have their own self sufficiency.
1: You can't get between a state and its money. Well,
2: that's the bottom line,
1: isn't it? That's the bottom line. Yeah. That's the bottom line. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a sad thing, but uh, yeah, unfortunately. So, I mean, that's I mean that's a that's a neat book. I mean, there was one that that uh, I actually approached you on, uh, and I just shut that page down on my computer, but uh, it was about. Uh, different mysteries in, in, in new england i i believe
2: yeah yeah the, the the latest book that um i have um about death in new england includes a couple of ghost stories you know and i yeah. i go at it from the angle of not just repeating the ghost story but trying to find the origin of it and how it became a kind of legend and so forth and oh, that's I guess excellent the, go ahead
1: no i said that's excellent
2: yeah that's yeah great the, way doing so it. the uh Uh, I'll give you an example. One is the story of Peter Rugg, the disappearance of Peter Rugg and his uh, 10-year-old daughter. So this story goes back uh, to the early 1800s. And so the the story itself is that Peter Rugg was a uh, wealthy merchant and owned a uh, fine house in Boston and was well known for a, a large black mare that drove a very elegant carriage. Uh, that took him around town and on his day trips. He was fond of taking day trips. He did business with many different places around Massachusetts, so he was fond of taking day trips and checking on things and then coming back by the evening. And so one particular night, he, uh, he ascended to his daughter. His 10-year-old daughter wanted to take the trip with him into Concord and back. And so he said, that's fine. And so they took the trip off, and they had a fine ride there. And he did business there, but on the way back, they got caught in a violent uh, thunderstorm. And so he stopped at a friend's house in Cambridge and stayed there a while to dry off and have a hot, uh, a warm drink. And the daughter warmed herself by the fire. And then they uh, he insisted upon taking his daughter out and leaving because he wanted to get home before dark. But they never made it home. And so the family sent out missives and... Uh, tried desperately to find any evidence of where they had disappeared stories began appearing of this mysterious ghost carriage always always kind of shrouded in a mist uh you know passing through on the lanes or on the highways and um and then about a year after their disappearance the neighbors were woken up in the middle of the night by a familiar clatter of hoofs and that being the large black mare that Pulled the doctor's car, the uh, pulled uh, Peter Rugg's carriage, and sure enough, they looked. One of the neighbors looked out the window and witnessed Peter Rugg's carriage going past, but continued on going and always enshrouded in this kind of mist, this kind of glowing mist, you know. And so that appeared in the newspaper, and uh, and so uh, it soon got uh, wide circulation, as you know. Colonial newspapers would pick up a story from anywhere and reprint it and reprint it. And so then uh, people wrote to the newspaper asking about more information, and the newspaper provided it. There were more sightings, even one as far as Whitford, where a minister was uh, riding his old horse through a, a rainstorm and got overtaken by this carriage and nearly knocked off his horse and other issues, like things like that happening, you know. All around New England, It seemed people saw Peter Rudd in his, his carriage, you know. Well, the bottom line is that this was all a story concocted by an Austin lawyer who wanted to make a name for himself and write a kind of um, story like a, like an Irving Washington tale, you know, that would oh, stick in yeah. people's minds, you know. And so he wrote this mm-hmm. for the New England newspaper. It was printed and uh, then reprinted, and then he added more to the story. So that the paper could reprint more reports of the mysterious, you know, people finding the uh, characters, noticing the characters and so forth. And then it was reprinted in Samuel Drake's Legends of New England. Uh, and so then that it literally took off from there and is, uh, is actually was actually included in a, a dictionary of unexplained phenomena. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's now taken for the truth. You know that this actually happened, and of course it was just a story that someone wanted to make up. And there are other similar stories that are in the book, uh, some true, uh, some true, and some not. You know, but I always try to uh, go to the origin. And you know, the interesting thing is that a lot of these spectral phenomena, a lot of the, um, a lot of the supernatural phenomena that occurred in New England, uh, was transcribed and recorded by ministers. So then in their publishing, the the, uh, the history of Hockington, Rhode Island uh, was published in the 1800s, and it was talking about Hockington being full of witches and mysterious sounds and odd, odd noises and odd happenings, you know. And uh, then there was a the case of a, uh, a ghost in Maine who, uh, whose story was also written up, uh, by a minister as a true spectral occurrence. So, the minister publishing these stories, of course, they've got to be true. They're true. And, you know, how do you explain them? Though? Well, they try to explain them in a certain spiritual way, but, uh, you know, there are many others, of course, you know you don't really know except for newspaper accounts of the public, Public reacted to these events. Well, in the case right. of the girl in Maine, who was a ghost, people flocked to the farm and camped out on the farm with a chance of going into the basement where her spirit went back and forth through the basement and things
1: like that. Huh. I mean, it's an amazing story. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. I mean, uh, I'm on the, the board of the Friends of uh, Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse in uh, Newcastle, New Hampshire. And we we uh, we take, basically take care of the lighthouse and, and to raise money, we do uh, tours because it's haunted. Why not? Uh-huh. Uh, but. <laughs> But there's also Port Constellation there as well. And we we take the tours through the fort and to the lighthouse. And when we, everything we tell, by the way, is, is always the truth. And the reason being, uh, I, I demonstrate this in the early tour, we go into the main sally port, to the fort. And uh, I always ask the question, I say, OK, who knows what the word Sallyport port comes from? You know, some people will put their hands up and, and try to guess at it, but. And I said, no, it, it comes from, uh, it's named after Sally Port, uh, who is the inventor of the English Muffin. And this is true oh. because I read, uh, read it on the internet. And then it, it dawns on it right then and there that, you know, what I was getting at is basically if you read something on the net, internet, it's not necessarily true. Because, very true. And, and I say, <laughs> yeah, you know, I say that if, I, if I'm given this tour and I tell you there was a man that was hung in this Sallyport, and uh, you go home and tell a, tell the story to somebody else, and somebody else, and then somebody's uh, writing a book on uh, haunted places in New Hampshire, and they said, Oh, there was this uh, you know person who was hung at the, uh, in the uh, Sallyport, uh, and yeah. this ghost yep. haunts the place, and then that's put in a book, and then somebody else who was writing a book on on ghosts of New England, and they they don't do a lot of research. they just find this other book and it's in the book, so it's got to be true too. so uh, and then it goes <laughs> on and on before you know it it's true. just like just like you were saying with that that ghost story. that's right.
2: yeah, New England newspapers were widely read. I mean, people were really widely literate in New England and they loved their newspapers. Uh, so you know the the more sensational the story, the better, you know so. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously this led to a lot of people writing stories like that there are a couple others in the book that i allude to that were the same type of story uh it, it seems that you know the the story of uh the, the money being the wages of sin were pretty prominent you know in those <laughs> days you know there was always a story of some man who was wealthy and the wealth caught up with him and he murdered someone every you know he, he did something crazy in a fit you know over a you know, over keeping his wealth and so forth. And, uh, you know, that was a popular theme in these kinds of stories. Yeah, uh stories at so point. Yeah. But I work at uh, Smith's Castle in Wick, above Whitford, Rhode Island. And uh, mm-hmm. that is reputedly one of the most haunted places in, uh, really? in the state. And, uh, you know, while I can say that I have felt uh, presences there to certain to a certain extent, not to end, not to the extent that uh, some of the things that uh, paranormal groups have. Found. We have one paranormal group uh, that comes through and does a uh, tour once a month during the season uh, into October. You know, uh, and uh, they have found some really amazing things. And, uh, and as somebody who who had a, a spectral experience, I guess you could say, as a young child, right when you're the most innocent and open to that, I guess. Um, right. I have to say that I, I am a believer in that. I think that in these old houses, there's probably plenty of ghosts. Uh, but I don't I don't think the malevolence of uh, the ghosts, as they're just usually described in accounts and in a lot of these books, are nearly as, as much
1: as, as people would have. A definitely TV show. shows. Yeah. Definitely yeah. TV shows. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's that's interesting. Yeah, uh, I'd love to get down here sometime. Gonna, I'll have to take a it's look at that. It's a beautiful
2: that. property. It, it was the site of one of the the northernmost site of the, what were called the Narragansett plantations. They were large estates that uh, operated uh, under, of course, slave labor uh, during mm-hmm. the 18th century and provided the uh, West Indies with a lot of their goods uh, from the Rhode Island uh, area. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So, so, do you want to tell me about your spectral experience when you were young? Yeah, and I, I think it, it probably
2: has to do with why I wrote about I write about colonial history. Uh, I was a young boy. Uh, I, I would say that I think I was eight or nine. Uh, my brother and I shared a room at the time, uh, and there was two, we had two bunk beds and there was a space between them, uh, and so. Uh, we had a door that came from the kitchen into our room, and then another door on the other side of the room that went out into a hallway through the bathroom, and another bedroom. Uh, and so we were sleeping one night, uh, and I woke up. And I looked on my wall, and there were these portraits on my wall. And I kind of recognized them as colonial portraits, because I had seen pictures in textbooks, I think, of maybe, probably Washington or another uh, leaders of the Revolutionary War, and, and they were there on, on the wall, um, and then I saw the shadow, and it walked around my bed through the space between my brother and I's bed, bent over and looked at me. I didn't see a face or anything, just this shadow, and then Ooh. stood up again and then looked at my brother, walked past, and then out the opposite door into the hallway. Uh, now, in the morning. I told my brother what I had seen, and he told me that he had seen the same thing, except that he said that rather than seeing the shadow that I saw, he saw a man in full Revolutionary War gear. Oh, wow. Now, I saw the portraits. Now, he didn't see the portraits on the wall. So I saw the portraits on the wall and the shadow. He saw just the man in full Revolutionary War gear pacing through our room. And so, yeah, so that led me to, I'm still on the quest to find out. I know that there was an old mill down the road. Uh, We lived on a dead end street. Uh, It ended at what's called the Patuxent River. And there was a little stream that went along from an old mill uh, down the road from us into the Patuxent River. Uh, That may have been a place that they were guarding. It might have been a place of encampment. You know, uh, I don't have an explanation for the portraits on the walls, except maybe it was the site of a uh, of a building that had these, you know, had an office in it or something or uh, something like that, uh, barracks or
1: yeah. what have you. I don't know. You know, yeah, there are, there are there are some theories, and, and there have been many reports. Actually, uh, my co-host from the international show, Steve Parsons, a, a parapsychologist from the UK. He's done uh, a lot of TV interviews on it because he's far or expert in the subject than I am. But there are things called time slips where it seems like you're you go back into time into another period. So you're actually looking into time, which is intriguing that that might explain uh, what you're seeing with the colonial portraits and the, and why your brother saw the, the colonial uh, and, and perhaps because of just where you were, even though it was so close to where he was, that that view, that door to the time slip was not completely open. so you only saw a shadow rather than the uh, the full thing. I had not materialize. I have no clue. But anyways, we are coming up to uh, break, so we're going to have to take a break in a couple of minutes. No, uh, just, I'll, just with, you, I'll just leave you
2: this one. Thank you for having me, first of all. But oh, no,
1: I wait a minute. It's only leave. a break. You're not going away. <laughs> oh Okay, all right. No, we have to take a break, but uh, we'll, we'll, right, gonna, come, uh, we'll be come back. Come back. All right. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't, don't jump out on me now. <laughs> okay. Anyways, <laughs> yeah, you've been listening to uh, Ghost Chronicles um, Next Generation with Ron. He ends on uh, working tonight, actually. And our special guest is Robert Geek, and uh, we're brought to you by Circles of Wisdom, 386 Merrimack Street, Methuen, Massachusetts, the Glent Messier Family Law Group, 15 High Street, North Andover, Massachusetts, and our very good friends on Ghost Chronicles Radio on Patreon. Uh, you too can help uh, support the show and become a Patreon member. You have access to over uh, 40 videos, and we have a special treat coming up for our Patreon members very shortly, uh, which I will be announcing on the later show. But, uh, you know, check it out, Ghost Chronicles Radio on Patreon. And uh, we'll be right back after the following uh, messages with uh, historian uh, Robert Geek. And welcome back to Ghost Chronicles, Next Generation. Of course, that was the theme to Van Helsink. Why not? I am Ron Kolick, and with me is my special guest, historian, historic author, Robert Geek.
2: Thanks, Ron.
1: Good to be back. Oh, thank you. So if somebody wanted to get in touch with you or learn more about you, how could they do that, uh, Robert?
2: Well, they can uh, look me up uh,
1: through my Facebook.
2: To uh, Facebook, um, just look up Robert Geek on Facebook, and you can message me. Uh, that's the easiest way. Uh, get a hold of me by email, rkeek, R-G-E-A-K-E 57, at gmail.com. You can email me. Um, I usually I usually try and answer people's requests. I do get a lot of requests for people who, uh, since I've been writing about the Revolutionary War, in recent years, a lot of people are looking to... Uh, find information about their ancestors and want to know if I have anything, heard anything, uh, or ever yeah. come across names and things like that. But um, i you know, pertaining to, to, being to what we're talking about today and, and ghost stories and so forth, there's a couple other ghost houses in the book and things like that that I examine. And, uh, you know, uh, again, I'm kind of curious to know what the truth is, so I fi- try to find out um, mm-hmm. different you know, different stories behind the tales that are told in, in some of the other books, you know. Um, and um, some of these are very familiar to me because I've been writing about them. Uh, one of the first things I did, in fact, I um, told, uh, I used to tell students that uh, the first time that I was out in the field doing experience as a researcher, I nearly got myself arrested. Uh, and huh. this happened in. <laughs> This happened in rural Rhode Island, where I had heard about this family and wanted to write a history about uh, the family as a part of it. I believe this was in high school. So I drove this beat-up old car I had out to uh, out to this farm, uh, parked on the side of the road, uh, located the family cemetery, and walked over and started writing down the names and dates and so forth. And before I know it, there's a plainclothes police officer approaching me. And apparently uh-huh. what happened is it was the house, which was, you know, some distance away, but still very clearly visible, uh, had been broken into. It was still a family home uh, held by a family in New York. Uh, and so um, it had apparently been broken into shortly before, and they thought that I might have been coming back to pick up some hidden loot or something. So <laughs> <laughs> so I showed them my pad. I showed them, you know them what I was doing and so forth but that's really the you know when you're when you're studying a history of a family or even even studying a story uh, that involves a family it's good to go out and find the place where they lived if you can and uh, and find uh, the cemetery and whatever sources you can in their own neighborhood oh, yeah. you know uh yeah. there's you know where I work we have a lot of stories that come to us Um, that we would not know about had it not been for a woman who lived across the street that kept a diary her entire life and visited the house across the road. Yeah. So we know about all about the different trajectories of the owners of the farm and, uh, and when they tried the first, uh, you know, steam, steam, uh, powered tractors and things like that on the property, things like that. Uh, when it became a huge dairy farm. So we know all the trajectory of that history because someone kept a diary. And in many many communities, there are, there are many situations like that. Sometimes people leave their diaries to libraries, uh, so you right. go in and ask, and and they have a local collection. Many many times, there's uh, lots of information in those, uh, and you can find you know much more information than you would a lot of times just looking up the records. Of course, you know unless you happen find yeah. a newspaper story or
1: something. You know? Yeah, I I love libraries actually, uh, but. You know, it, it really uh, disturbs me nowadays. Is, is the big woke movement? Uh, it, it's 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 the wrong way to handle history, uh, in, in my opinion. This is only only my opinion. Uh, if if you you know they want to rename everything, they want to take down statues and everything. By doing that, you, there's no discussion. You're just trying to rewrite history, and you, and you can't do that because you're gonna end up uh, repeating it or whatever. It's just, it's so, it's so sad in a lot of ways because uh, there's always several sides to a story. And, and, you know, we we talk about like, for instance, Civil War, Mm -hmm. we we look at it from the Northern liberal point of view, but uh, you know, there was another side to the Civil War. Why did men fight? Why did, if you don't know those reasons, then you can't address right. problems with that. There's no discussion. So that that's a big irritation to me, and, and I find it sad, actually.
2: I understand your frustration. And I understand um, the need for something like the 1619 Project, and I understand the voices that need to come out of that and, and what we need to listen to, but uh, we need to guard the truth as well. Um, uh, I, I was talking with a, a historian friend of mine recently, and he said we're in the midst of uh, the great atonement. You know, there's nothing that can stop it. There's nothing we can do until it rides past, and then we can get back to writing. You know, the truth about history and, and re- rediscovering. You know what some of this has has wiped away. Um, you know, there there's many many reasons why. Statues and so forth should remain, um, and there's reasons why we need to keep those emblems so that young people can learn the entire history. Of exactly. The country, you know. Um, so I, I understand your frustration with that. I have some frustrations with that too. Um, uh, I just being someone that writes about slavery a great deal, I can understand. I have some empathy for what 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 are trying to do but as with every extreme there there are signs that go too far you know um mm-hmm. so and unfortunately that that is what we're hearing the most about because there's the loudest you know the extremists right. uh, on both yeah, sides I, are always the loudest you
1: it's always the extremists that destroy the truth. <laughs> But, anyways, uh, I didn't mean to get on my high horse, and I apologize. So, so uh, I'm sorry. Did I say that? Uh, did I hear you say that you were a teacher, or are you a? Te- uh, what did you teach? I'm retired now, happily retired.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But okay, uh, yeah, and, was, and, yeah. Where, where did you teach? Oh,
2: high school, and then uh, in uh, special education as well. Oh, wow. And I also taught. Oh. I also my my most uh, satisfying uh, group actually were were teaching uh, uh, new uh, new immigrants to the country uh, for a great oh. about, about a decade. I, I taught I taught basic what was basic civics. You know how mm-hmm. to, how to vote and you know, what the import, what the government uh, ran like, the importance of democracy, and things like that. Uh, I don't even know if they teach. They obviously were far more receptive than uh, the, the students that I had in a, <laughs> in a regular classroom, in a regular high
1: school classroom. As you yeah. Can imagine. <laughs> yeah, I've been to Rhode Island. Uh, that's where you're from. Uh, uh, I've done some investigating down there, uh, have friends down there. Um, Tom Thomas D'Agostino is, uh, writes a lot about uh, the different... Right,
2: yeah, I know his books. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, he's a good friend of mine, but um, years ago, I'm trying to think of, probably 20 years ago, we did a live broadcast from the uh, Sprague Mansion in uh, Cranston, Rhode Island. Oh, uh, yes. yep, it was yes. run by the Cranston Historical Society. That was a, a beautiful mansion. It's great stories there, too. Absolutely wonderful stories. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it
2: without... Did you have success
1: in, uh, is it Kate Sprague, the ghost? Who is there, Kate Sprague? The, well, I mean? y- you know what? The interesting thing about ghost stories as you have, of course, there's no proof. It's all interpretation. Mm-hmm. And you really, I, I think in a lot of cases, you find what you're looking for, other words. So if you're looking for this particular ghost, then that's what you're going to find. It may not be mm-hmm. that particular ghost that's haunting it, but that's what you're going to find. Uh, th- that happens in a lot of cases, and uh, mm-hmm. it, it you know, yeah. it's interesting to, yeah. It was it was a, the the Sprague Mansion was, was a lot of fun. I mean, we stayed overnight there on a Halloween. We did a live broadcast from uh oh. there along with two other groups we had one other group in uh deborah in england and another one in uh australia and we did a, a a broadcast of three different groups that night so it was it was kind of fun we were on channel 10 news i believe that night too as well so okay yeah was, it's was a long long time ago though it was long ago and far away as they say <laughs> but uh <laughs> But uh Rhode Island's a little state but has a lot of ghost stories. I was surprised how many ghost stories uh are there in that little tiny state of yours.
2: Yeah. yeah, here in uh here in Wickford there's supposedly uh supposedly witches uh gathered and danced on a place called Hell's Hole, which is right down the road. Um oh. it's now part of uh, Hall's Rock, which is a, a nice, a nice new suburban settlement. So I wonder how I wonder how long it'll be before those people get woken up by the witches. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we always have fun in Wickford. Of course, you know people believe that Updike's book, uh, The Witches of Eastwick, was uh, took place in Wickford, and you know that's always kind of carried on into now they have a witches parade every year and things like that. You know, of so they kind of uh, they kind of uh, beef up the you know the story there about witches in Wickford, but. Uh, yeah, you know Rhode island was was a uh recluse for a lot of a lot of people who who were not fitting into Puritan New england you know and and uh you know thus the story is of strange odd people you know I think that's mm-hmm. that's really not you know not too far off the mark you I, I don't think that we necessarily had tons of witches and warlocks and you know people like, like that here, necessarily. We just had eccentric people who wanted to be left alone and live their own lives. Uh, that's what we were known for, you know. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, I, I always, uh, you know, I think with women in particular, you know, when uh, given the Puritan suspicion of, uh, you know, of single women, uh, elderly women, and so forth, I think that uh, uh, that carried over a little bit into Rhode Island, but you know, perhaps not so much as in Massachusetts, and there was no witch. No witch was ever hung. No one ever accused of witchcraft was ever hung in Rhode Island. You know.
1: No, uh, we we took them all up to Salem. That's it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, there are a lot more than Salem when when uh, when the governor took control and. And put the council together for the witch trials in Salem. There were there were supposedly well over a hundred people in jails all along the southern uh, coastline of Massachusetts.
1: Yeah. You know. Oh yeah. So uh, this, yeah, it, it was a widespread phenomenon. Uh, there's there's many places uh, um, that uh, the name. I mean, like those. Uh, I forget what it's called. Witch Witch's Road or something like that. It's up in towards uh, Maine, and, and that's where they uh-huh. brought a, a woman in for being uh, a witch and they brought her along this road and we got to get its name. But uh, I mean, uh, you, you know, we, of course, we, you know, we not only had witches, but we had vampires everywhere in New England, too. You know, that they're, <laughs> you know, that was one of the first uh, stories I
2: wrote when I was a young man was uh, the story of Mercy Brown. I even went oh, to did you really? Homes. Yeah. I wrote a story in the, for the high school newspaper about Mercy Brown. It later got printed oh. in the Coventry Townsman. Uh, but uh, I went out and visited her descendants, uh, and uh, they showed me news. They had a scrapbook full of newspaper clippings that they had, and they showed me those, and I took information from those and uh, went out to see her grave and so forth. And, uh, yeah, that was my first... Uh, one of my first articles about New England history it was about Mercy
1: Brown and the whole situation there. Yeah, And we had, of course, hey, that was- others that... Go ahead uh, for those who we don't know what we're talking about we're talking about the vampire phenomena that went around that people uh, uh, were dying of consumption and, and they thought it was the result of right. uh, vampires so they would dig up the bodies and uh well I'll let you carry on in Mercy's there, case like, in Mercy's case they
2: uh, in Mercy's case they found uh, what they believed to be evidence that she was someone who wandered at night. And uh, they cut out her heart burned her heart on a rock and mixed the ashes into the concoction for her younger brother to drink, who was then, but then also suffering from consumption. And that didn't work, did it? No, it didn't. No. (laughs) But it was such a phenomenon that they had the state medical examiner come out and witness the event. You know, Uh, and even in the journal, they... They wrote about what a horrible, you know, what a horrible ritual it was to dig up the body and do this, you know. Uh, so yeah, they were, uh, Exeter was considered really backwards, <laughs> I guess, to people in Providence at that time. Mm.
1: Yeah, I had a, a friend, uh, Michael Bell, who wrote a, a book on that food for the dead. Uh, uh, Michael,
2: which... that's a great book. Michael's a great. Uh, Michael's a great historian of the uh, of the yeah. uh, early New England. Uh, Phenomena like that, yeah. Great, yeah. I, Mars, I, yeah.
1: I, I, I met him uh, a few, well, a long time ago. Uh, he did a couple of events with me, and uh, he was at the Sprague Mansion, in fact, when we did that uh, oh, okay, broadcast. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Michael Fell, yeah. He's from the Texas
2: Village here, I believe.
1: Uh, I, I know he's somewhere, he's out of state now, but. Uh, yeah, he is. Did I tried to contact uh, him
2: recently? Still friends with Facebook.
1: Friends, Facebook friends with him, yes. So, <laughs> ah, good to know. But uh, yeah, it's it's intriguing. Uh, do we have? I mean, New England is such a rich, rich area for history, of course, because you know we're one of the oldest sections. Uh, you know. Mm-hmm. It's so hard to say that one of the oldest sections in the country. I mean, there there are a lot of old sections of the country. It's like it's like saying, oh, this is the most haunted place. Like, well, oh, you know what? Maybe it isn't. <laughs> We'd like to think. Well, about you know, it. we're 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 gloomy for a good part of the year, and we're you know cold and dark
2: and shadowy you know, for a good part of the year. So it, it kind of fits. Yeah, yeah I guess.
1: <laughs> But, I mean, we had a share of everything, not only vampires and and ghosts, but we had monsters, too. We have monsters, all like the uh, Dover Demon. And, uh, you know, of course, we had the Sea Serpent of Gloucester, which was, you know, seen. Right, right. That's one of the most fascinating cases. I I was actually doing a documentary on uh, sea sea serpents and lake monsters, and uh, Uh. I, I I dug up a lot of information on that, uh, you know, which they had a team from Harvard uh, that was actually sent out there to um, investigate it as well. But that was seen by hundreds of people. So uh, intriguing yes, stuff. I it was.
2: Uh, I, I, believe, uh, I believe I wrote about that uh, some years ago. I published a book called uh, New, England, uh, New England Mariner, The New England Mariner Tradition, and that included a chapter on uh, sea monsters and things like that. So yeah, the Gloucester sea Shepherd was definitely there. And uh yeah. But uh but, uh that was quite
1: interesting. They have very detailed descriptions as I recall. Oh yeah, yeah. I've got a whole files on the on that uh that particular case. Uh speaking of your books and I don't want to go off the show without knowing it can you give us the titles of some of your books and where they can be found? Yeah, for I can
2: I can tell you that uh, for uh, the listeners uh, of your audience, probably the most uh, interesting books that they would find that I've written would be uh, one book called Colonial New England Curiosities, and uh, that's published by the History Press. It was published in number, about 2016, and uh, you can find that online on Amazon.com, or you can go to your uh, local bookstores. It's still a popular one of the more popular books uh, of mine. Uh, that are for sale, and uh, there's also the new book is called uh, Death in Early New England. That'll be out in July, uh, and that uh, again recounts uh, death in all its different forms in New England. Uh, includes the early funerals and use of funeral jewelry and memorials. And, oh, excellent! Uh, and grave, you know, the evolution of grave sites and and gravestones, gravestone carvers. And so forth, and the garden cemeteries and all, all the like. So, um, it, Robert, when that book
1: heart. comes out, Robert, when that book comes out, I have to have you on the show again because my co-host Ann is a, is a big taphophile. She loves cemeteries. She she re- takes all the pictures of all the gravestones, all the artwork on it, and everything else. Uh, yeah. So we'd love to heart. have you back. <laughs> we'd love to have you have you back. Uh, yeah, when that book comes out, we'll, we'll have you back on if you don't mind. Uh, absolutely sure. Yeah, that would be great. So, uh, is of all the books? I mean, you've written a lot of different books. Uh, what is there a story that really intrigues you to both, or are you really enjoyed writing?
2: I think that uh, I think that I enjoyed the narr- writing the narrative answer book. Of course, that was my first book, and that was. Uh, an exciting yeah. uh, venture and, and really, really important. Uh, and I, it was well-received. I was very glad for that. Um, I wrote I wrote a book on uh, caverns in Rhode Island, historic caverns in Rhode Island, and that grew out of my love for old houses, as, as you have, you know, um, and researching the old houses that were around. We we're very fortunate uh, to have uh, a couple of places in Rhode Island, uh, Providence, uh, Newport and Whitford, where there's an abundance of colonial houses. Uh, so you, you can have a, a field day, you know, researching the houses and, and the people that lived in them and, and, you know, kind of picturing the city as it was back in colonial times. So um, I, wrote, I wrote a book about historic caverns and also wrote a book on historic farms, which was uh, a great deal uh, of fun and enjoyable. Um, I drove around to uh, rural communities in Rhode Island and met some of the people that were still farming. I included some of them in the book, um, and uh, I think uh, I think probably those those were enjoyable in, in terms of uh, finding out a little bit more of the history of myself that I didn't know, you know. And then I turned into uh, to writing revolutionary the books on the Revolutionary War, um, mm-hmm. in particular. Um, The uh, book, From Slaves to Soldiers, I wrote with Lorraine Spears, an Arrogansett Niantic uh, woman who was the director of the Tanaquad Museum in Exeter, Rhode Island. Because there were uh, a good number of indigenous soldiers involved in the Revolutionary War uh, whose story had not really been told, you know, mentioned in a couple of sentences, you know. And even when I wrote the Narragansett book, I didn't write much more than a paragraph about that, because I didn't know. So I okay. enlisted uh, Her Head, and she helped me to write a little bit about uh, that history. We included it in the book about what was called the Black Regiment. Uh, it was called oh, yeah. the Black Regiment. Because, uh, we, it was, it was supposed we have a to big be...
1: monument. Of... Yeah, we have a big That's monument right. in Boston. Yep.
2: That's right. So uh, they were supposed to be uh, all enslaved men. And, of course, they could, they couldn't quite get enough enslaved men, so they included indigenous men. Who had already enlisted in uh, the Second Rhode Island Regiment, as well as uh, some uh, Europeans uh, who were indentured servants and people of mixed races, until they had enough for a full regiment. Uh, but it wow. was still still That's called the Black Regiment because of that, you know. Um, but it was only at its beginning stages uh, mostly black. After that, the black numbers dwindled down until they were. Less than the white in the, in the first Rhode Island in the end of the war. But um, uh, they joined the Battle of know Rhode that. Island. I learned tonight. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, from, called From Slaves to Soldiers. And uh, then I wrote a book, "Citizens New England Citizen Soldiers, which was uh, really enjoyable, too, because again, I traveled around New England and learned some stories about local uh, boys that had enlisted, local men who had enlisted and their stories and tried to include those in the book as much as I could. Uh you know, there was uh, there was this uh, young boy called Simeon Lee who uh have you ever heard of the Thimble Islands off of Connecticut? Yes. Yeah so so his family lived on one of the Thimble Islands and they had
1: just before
2: the war began they had suffered a devastating outbreak of smallpox where uh, his father and several of his brothers died from smallpox oh, wow. and had to be buried. And here he was with the rest of his family, uh, faced with protecting the, uh, the home on the island when the British came through and tried to raid it. Uh, he lost his life, and his, um, his gravestone is there just off the coastline, uh, and you, you know uh, just on the coastline, I should say. Uh, because the island is owned by someone else now, but uh, you know it's a fascinating story. Uh, you know about early set- being there from the early settlers, and here's the last man in the family line to die. You know, defending his home. You know, uh, really mm-hmm. kind of tragic. Uh, the whole the whole story of those years was, was tragic for him. The uh, uh, but there are lots of other uh, fascinating stories, and as I as I did that, I also found a lot of stories about black men who had enlisted in local militia, and then uh, in the continental line, and served uh, for the first year of the Revolutionary War. And that ended up uh, into me uh, giving a talk, uh, and I was, I was going to say before we uh, went on the break that uh, it's really come full circle because that the trajectory of my life from seeing the ghostly soldiers, so to speak, and the apparition of the, the portraits of the law, and so forth has come full circle. And that next week, I am going to the Society of Cincinnati and giving a talk about the Black Regiment uh, before, the, uh, oh, wow. before the American Revolutionary War Institute. Uh, so it's, it's amazing. It's an amazing trajectory of my life. But I have to say that, that I'm convinced that that vision or that that experience
1: uh, really led to this in the end. Isn't that amazing how that stops? Anyways, we are running out of time, so I do have to wrap up the show. Uh, I did want to mention that, that my town that I live in, Drakeett, Massachusetts, we had uh, uh, several people from town that died uh, fighting in the Revolutionary War. Um you know, that's that's the great thing. Some of these, you know, it was everybody. That was the whole thing. Everybody got involved from yeah, all yeah. over the place. Yeah, it was. And we, we we tend to forget that. But anyways, we do have to go. Uh, you have been listening to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation uh, with Ron. A special guest has been uh, Robert Geek, uh, historical author, Uh Check out his new book, which is coming out in July, called What Robert?
2: It is called Death in Early New England,
1: uh, Rights, Rituals, and Remembrance. And we'll have you on when that comes out as well. So, Robert, That's thank true. you so much for uh, being with us tonight. Uh thank today's you, show Rob. is brought to you. Yeah, you're welcome. Today's show is brought to you by Circles of Wisdom three eighty six Memorack Street in Massachusetts, the Glant Messier Family Log Group, 15 High Street, North Andover, Massachusetts, and our very good friends on Ghost Chronicles Radio on Patreon. You too can become a member for a mere three bucks a month and help support the show. So good night, everyone. God bless and stay safe.